Well, good morning, everyone. So to start our time together today, we're going to be reading from Job chapter 36. If you would like to turn there and read with me, you can. I'm going to begin in verse 22, so Job 36, 22. It says, Look, God shows himself exalted by his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed his way for him? And who has declared you have done wrong? Remember that you should praise his work, which people have sung about. All mankind has seen it. People have looked at it from a distance. Yes, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of his years cannot be counted. For he makes water drops evaporate. They distill like the rain into mist, which the clouds pour out and shower abundantly on mankind. Can anyone understand how the clouds spread out or how the thunder roars from God's pavilion? See how he spreads his lightning around him and covers the depth of the sea. For he judges the nations with these. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to hit its mark. The thunder declares his presence and the cattle also, the approaching storm. Thank you, Ellie. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Ellie is our kids ministry uh, director, and she also runs the office for the church. So when BJ and I are on time and where we're supposed to be, credit Ellie. That's right. If you would turn to the gospel of Mark chapter 12 this morning, I'm so, so very excited to be back into our study through the gospel of Mark. Uh, I love Advent season. I love doing the Advent series. Um, But I always find myself at the beginning of the next year just excited to get back into the text that we've devoted so much time to. So um, as most of you know, we're studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to pick up in verse 35 where we left off. And as you're finding verse 35 of Mark 12, by way of introduction, I want to remind you of what has happened just prior to this moment that we're going to be looking at here in Mark 12, 35. Uh, Jesus having answered the insidious questions of the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, is asked a genuine question in the text prior to where we begin today by a scribe. And the scribe not only agrees with the answer that Jesus gives him, but he affirms the answer with Old Testament scripture. And so kind of a unique situation in the Gospels where a religious leader not only recognizes the wisdom and the rightfulness of Jesus' answer, but even adds to it and says, yeah, and this is why that's correct, basing it off the Old Testament scripture. And it's to the scribes' agreement that Jesus makes the following statement in verse 34. It should be right there just prior to the verse we're going to begin in. It says this, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared to question him any longer. There's two important things that happen here in verse 34, and it's important for us to know going forward. The first is this. There's a difference between affirming the wisdom and power of Jesus and receiving him as Lord of your life. There's a difference between recognizing the power and the wisdom and receiving him as Lord of your life. This passage in verse 34 is the evidence for that because this scribe recognizes Jesus's wisdom. He recognizes the rightness, if you will, of his answer to his question. However, Jesus says, you're not far. You see, he hasn't entrusted himself to Jesus yet. He hasn't made Jesus his Lord yet. And the other thing that's very interesting about this passage is that no one dares to question him any longer. 
No one's asking any more questions, and you're going to notice Jesus is the one who now asks the question. There's a shift at the end of chapter 12 where Jesus is the one asking the questions, and it's no coincidence that Mark follows the encounter with the scribe with the teaching of Jesus in the temple here in this final week in in Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. He's going to focus on something that puts our eyes on the lordship of the Messiah, Jesus is going to shift his teaching. He's going to ask a question, and we'll notice this after we read it. He's not going to wait for an answer. Jesus is going to ask a question and then give the answer because he wants us to see and understand, both those there and for us this morning, that his lordship matters, that his lordship ought to have our attention and our focus. It's not just the political view of the Messiah that the people of that time had that was askew. Their problem was they didn't plan to receive the Messiah's Lord. They wanted him to come and do their bidding. They wanted him to come and do what they wanted him to do. And Jesus had come to do the Father's will. That was the purpose for which he came. That was the mission that he was here to accomplish. And so this morning, we're going to finish Mark 12 by looking at three sections of this chapter. The first focuses on lordship. The second on egoism and the third on sacrifice. So let's begin by looking at verse 35, and we'll read down through verse 37. We'll take these sections as they come. So Mark 12, 35 reads this way. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. It would be delightful to hear Jesus teach, wouldn't it? In person, to hear the wisdom and hear the words that he spoke. It's interesting to me that it it notes at the end of this section that they're listening to him with delight, but the religious leaders are listening to him with dismay. It was clearly revealed in Mark 11.10 that the crowds agreed with the teaching of the scribes in this time that the Messiah was the son of David. Uh, They believed that he would descend from the Davidic line. They declared in that passage as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's fascinating that Mark makes sure that that's in the gospel account because Jesus addresses that directly. He addresses the idea of who the Messiah is as the Davidic king. But Jesus is going to talk about so much more in this passage. He's going to point our eyes to so much more. He poses the question, how can that be the case? And not waiting for them to answer, he quotes from the most often quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. It's either quoted or alluded to 33 times in the New Testament, which means we ought to really pay close attention to it. Because if it's repeated that many times, it's drawing our eyes to something very important from the Old Testament. And this is what Psalm 110 verse 1 says. It's exactly what Jesus says. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus reveals, David is prophetically proclaiming the Messiah is indeed descended from David, but he has a more exalted role than that of a successor of David. He is the son of God. Jesus didn't leave any room for people to think that he was just a good teacher or just another prophet or just another rabbi. Jesus left no room for that. He pointed directly to the Old Testament and said, I am the son of God. 
I am the Savior. He left no room for nebulous inside of that. You either believe that he is God in human flesh or you do not. He didn't leave anywhere in the middle for people to waffle. H.G.C. Moole said it really well, because although he is his son by descent and therefore is junior in age, he is also in some mysterious way superior to David and therefore his senior in rank. This is what he's drawing people's attention to. He's drawing the crowd's attention to. Jesus is not just correct in his teaching. He's not just right in what he said to the scribe prior, where he says, you're right. That is what the Old Testament teaches. And Jesus is saying, you understand that I'm so much more than just a good teacher, right? That I'm not just teaching you the words of truth, that I am the answer to your sin problem. That I am the answer to the sin and the death that has prevailed against human beings since the garden in Genesis 3. He is so much more. As was affirmed by the scribe in the prior passage, he is a wonderful teacher. He is correct in what he said. He is both the descendant to the throne of David, however, and the Lord of heaven. We cannot see him as separate from those two things. He is both in the same because he is fully God and he is fully man. He's drawing the people's attention away from the political view of the son of David. And this is important. They become so focused on the military role of the Messiah. This perception that they had that once the Messiah came, he would deal with Rome who oppressed them. He would finally liberate them to be a free people. They were so focused on the military action that would be taken by a king by the one who would come from the Davidic line. Remember, all the kings that they, that they would look at, they would compare to whom? They compare them to David. And so the one that they need in their mind politically was the king who was going to come from the line of David that had been promised to them. Jesus isn't denying that he's the son of David. In fact, we have genealogy to show for that, don't we? But he is affirming that he is so much more, that he is the son of God that he's come with greater purpose than that. And this is where our reminder comes, church. The expectations of the people, the expectations of the religious leaders based off of what they see in Scripture were wrong. It's not that they misunderstood that he would come from the line of David. It's that they actually believed that they could direct where he was going to go and what he was going to do. I think this is a strong reminder for us to remember that our expectations of Jesus are always to fall within the character of his lordship. That when I come to Jesus, I am coming and asking for his will to be done, not mine. That I'm not trying to impress upon him what I believe needs to happen in my life, but I'm coming humble and submitted that whatever he is going to do will be good. It'll be for my good, whether it's something that's difficult or something that's easy, and that I need to submit to that will because he is God and I am not. He's not just the king who would come and lead his people. He is the savior. He is the creator. For more on that, Colossians 1. You guys, we don't define for God what the right choices are, what the right direction is. However, I think often we try. We try to show him what would really be best for our lives. We even pray in that way, don't we? Lord, if you could just... Do me this one solid, right? You know what? I understand that, and I've, I've, 
I don't think there's any problem with you coming to God and saying, Lord, I need you to do this for me. I need you to help me. I think one of the greatest prayers in all of scripture was Peter on the Sea of Galilee saying, Lord, help. I think that's one of the greatest prayers of all time. Because Peter just recognized, I'm done if he doesn't do something. That's the kind of prayer that we need to have. It's okay to tell the Lord what's going on in your life. Look at the psalmist. He goes on and on about his circumstances and the things that he's going through. And yet we're, we're shown in scripture. God brings us through these things. He is sovereign and it's his will that needs to be done. So Lord, give me strength in the midst of this. I don't like it, but help me. You guys, we don't define what the best, the best course forward is. He's not steered by our will. We are directed by his. He was not made in our image. We were made in his. May we never, ever forget that. I was made in his image. I am to reflect his glory and to do his will on this earth. It's what we pray, what Jesus taught us to pray when he says, you know what, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done. It's so important for us to be reminded of that. If Jesus is Lord, then he defines for us in his goodness what acceptable worship, what acceptable character, and what the will of God is. It means that his character and lifestyle are to be emulated by us and that shifts our intent from seeking to give him directive on how to impact our lives in, into a loving walk of obedience that seeks to be conformed further into his image. Lord, I'm having a hard time Show me how to do this your way. Strengthen me. And you know what's amazing, church, is he's given us his spirit. He's given us his Holy Spirit to strengthen us to do it. All the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and I. It's present. We don't have to go looking for it. Thank you, Courtney. That is an amen moment. The Holy Spirit is present. It's here. All we have to do is ask the Lord to strengthen us for whatever it is that he's asked us to do, to do it his way. Now, the people who are gladly listening to Jesus speak here, sometimes we could sit here and be like, mm, that's a good word. It's gonna get tough when you go home. It's gonna get tough when you go home. We may gladly listen here, but I wanna encourage you guys, call upon the Lord to strengthen you for the moments where you feel weak, where you know the challenge is gonna meet you at your most compromised point. Remember, the Lord is there. He is powerfully present there. He is near the brokenhearted. When you struggle the most, he is the most powerfully present and ready to help. That's our savior. Now the people, as they were listening, would have thought that the best examples of worship would be the religious leaders. Jesus is showing us his lordship. He's showing us how to submit to his will and what kind of leader he is. And yet the people in their perception so often was to look to the religious leaders as those who set the standard for what true worship ought to look like. And that they set the standard for piety and holiness. But look where Jesus goes next in his teaching. And this is here for a reason. As we think about the scribe recognizing Jesus and Jesus saying, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus identifies himself as Lord and says, here's the thing, not just from the line of David, but Lord, Savior, God in human flesh. And then he warns them. In verse 38, he also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes 
who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Jesus points at what inauthentic religiosity, inauthentic worship looks like. And he categorizes four things about the scribes that he wants us to take note of. He says that they want or take pride in, if you will, long robes. Now, I don't think that it's the the fashion statement that was the problem here. Not at all. Because we know that the long robes weren't worn for practical purposes. They were worn to be noticed. They were worn for the notoriety of them. Some of them had little bells on them so that you heard them coming. You're like, oh, a holy person approacheth. (laughs) You guys, there's, (laughs) sorry, King James, it's in there still. You guys, there, there's, there's a notoriety that's desired for. You see it also in the second thing that he lists. He says, they want greetings in the marketplaces. You're like, but we have a greeting time here at church. Totally different. It's totally different. They wanted to be addressed by honorific titles. A greeting in a marketplace would be someone recognizing their status or recognizing who they were by calling them rabbi, master, father, teacher, by this role that gives them some kind of notoriety as being better than, more educated, or in a higher status in society than they were. They wanted these things. We'll get to that in a minute. The third thing is it says that they want the best seats in the synagogues. In the synagogue, they occupied the bench in front of the ark that contained the sacred scroll, scrolls of the law and the prophets. They would sit up there in a certain position so they had access to the text that they would then read and teach from at synagogue. There the teachers could be seen by all the worshipers in the synagogue, so it would put them in a position to be seen. Now here's the thing. If that's your calling, then that's your calling. But notice what Jesus is saying about all these things over and again. This is what they want. This is their desire. Their heart's desire is to have these things. Long robes, greetings in the marketplaces, best seats in the synagogue, and he says the places of honor at banquets. They love being invited to banquets and being given the seat of honor. I'm the guest of honor. They were often invited to banquets because of their prestige, and they would be therefore given these special seats. Now, when we offer positions of honor to one another to bless one another, is that a problem? No, we're, we're, we're blessing others by giving them a position of honor. It's, it's us seeking to bless one another. The problem is when we seek for those things for ourselves and our benefit. The issue becomes when that's the driving force behind what we do. It's the desire of the heart now to be recognized, not for God to be recognized. Not for him to receive glory, but for us to receive glory in his place. This is what Jesus condemns. They're seeking honor for themselves instead of for God. The one whom they profess to serve. The one that they ought to be serving. The one who has called them to serve him in this way. They're receiving the benefit and the blessing for themselves. Church, our desire, and you can go to Old Testament scripture for this in Psalm 37. I love this passage, verses 3 through 6. This is what our desire ought to be. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Notice that. Take delight in the Lord and then receiving what you desire in that place 
will be a good thing. Because you're taking delight in him and not in yourself. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. We're going to see in a minute that the way that the religious leaders had led had drawn credit not only to themselves, but had given them such a desire to be honored that they were willing to commit injustice to get it. They were willing to mistreat people rather than letting righteousness shine like the dawn and their justice like the noonday. And when you look at Psalm 37, this is something I would do often for my students when I would teach. I'd say, what are, the, what are the things that you're being told in this? You're told to trust in the Lord. You're told to take delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. You see these repetitions flowing in there. Trust, take delight, commit your way. Like all of these commands, it's like, listen, this is what you were created for. This is why. God put us here on this earth, and we're going to find true joy and peace when we trust the Lord, take delight in the Lord, and commit our way to him. These are things that we ought to give ourselves to. Jesus puts it in these terms. Earlier on, we studied this passage in Mark 10. And he says this as our directive, as he calls his disciples together. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions that would be those who are in the scribes position act as tyrants over them but it is not so among you on the contrary whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many jesus says this is what it looks like This is what it looks like to find your identity in me. This is what it looks like to lead. Jesus condemns seeking of honor for ourselves because Jesus did not seek honor for himself. He came to seek and save the lost, to serve as the lowliest servant and to die to purchase those condemned to death. He left it in the Father's hands to honor him. He was not concerned about being honored by men. When the scribes sought for their own honor, it compromised not only their ability to accurately reflect God, but it extinguished their ability to shine not only his righteousness, but his justice as well. If we want true justice in this world, and I would think that together we all would agree, we want to see justice in this world because we love Jesus and he's a just and loving savior. If we want to see justice in this world, we have to be conformed into his image. It begins in our own hearts. It begins in our own lives. And we don't want to let any kind of inauthentic behavior diminish the justice of God in this world. He says it here in the text that the scribes even stooped to devouring widows' houses and the implication appears to be in verse 40 that they sought to cover up what they were doing by making long prayers. You could see those as two separate things, but it's interesting that he puts them together, covering up their injustice by making themselves look more holy. Covering up injustice because if I can pray like this, no one's going to doubt that what I'm doing is wrong. And yet they devoured widows' houses, and Jesus says this has earned them a stricter judgment. D. Edmund Hybert remarked, to rob the poor and the bereaved under the guise of personal piety doubles the guilt. That's a powerful statement. It doubles the guilt. Makes sense why James, living in a world of false religious piety, 
stated so clearly in James 1, verses 26 through 27, if anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. And then he defines what it is. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Don't fall to the, the false piety to the fake justice of the world, he says, here's what you need to do. You need to look after those who are marginalized. You need to care for those who are being forgotten and pushed to the outside of society, those who are easily taken advantage of. Love and care for them. And don't become stained by this world. There's no room for egoism in the kingdom of God. And what honors God is when we reflect the loving sacrifice and humility of his son. And for more on that, the following section, the closing section, is a reflection of just that. Look at this closing section of this chapter, beginning in verse 41. Here's Jesus sitting across from the treasury. He's just sitting there. Wouldn't that be an odd sight? Jesus just sitting there watching people give 13 horns that people would come and drop coins into. They drop money into, and Jesus is just observing. He's just sitting there watching. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Does what impresses Jesus when we look at the Gospels impress us? Does it strike us when we see things? I I think it does in a lot of situations. But I wonder how often we're missing it because we don't stop and sit down and observe. Just slow down and, and watch and observe just life and people around us. Not to mock, not to make fun, but to observe and to see what God's doing in this world. Picture Jesus sitting and observing all of this, and amidst all those who gave these large amounts from their surplus, what catches his attention is not the amount of those horns ringing from those coins dropping in, but from the smallest two pieces that somebody could have put in. What catches his attention and causes him to call the disciples over to observe is this poor widow who gives two tiny coins, which is all she has. She places in the box two copper coins or lepta. If you're curious about the monetary value, the smallest coins in circulation were these lepta. Their value was a fraction of a penny. So you know how when you see a penny on the ground and you just, meh, it's not worth the risk of the germs? You know? Like, I remember as a kid, I picked up every coin I saw. Because you never know. You know, it might be a wheatback penny. You know, my parents are poking around trying to grab the coins. But you think about this, like nowadays it's like, I'm not picking that penny up because first of all, it's worthless. Second of all, who knows where it came from, right? These two lepta were fractions of a penny. They were almost worthless. What she lacked in monetary wealth, she exponentially made up for in spiritual riches by what she did. It wasn't that those two lepta were so valuable. It said it was all she had. It was literally the last of what she had. 
giving is an act of worship, you guys. No matter what amount or what we're giving, the very act itself is only as valuable spiritually as is the sincerity and the purpose of the heart behind it. It comes down to the heart. It comes down to why I'm giving. You see, if it was about monetary value and how much, then all the others outpaced this widow. But Jesus says she gave more because of the heart behind it and the desperation and what kind of a position it was putting her into. And the last of what she had, she gave to the Lord. Giving is always an act of worship. Sincere worship is not about quantity, style, or visibility. The greatest gift someone can give is all that they have. That applies to not only us in our financial lives, but it applies especially to us in the life that God has given to us. The greatest gift that we can give is all that we have. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head, nothing more than a garment that had to be parted amongst soldiers at the cross. There was nothing else to divvy out. They had to cast lots for his clothing because that's all there was. His wealth didn't lie in earthly things, but in the physical life that the Father had given him. It was this life that he gave freely, the greatest gift he could ever give and the greatest gift that human beings could ever receive. You see, Jesus sees in this widow someone who gives all that they have to him. It reflects he's about to give all that he has. It it reflects him. Do you ever wonder if this widow had any idea that the God of the universe was sitting there watching her give these two coins? That he was watching her do this and praising her because it reflected what he was about to do. What a testament. What a testimony to a life that was being lived well that he says, that represents me well, what she just did. To the everyday ordinary person, we probably wouldn't have even caught it. Might have walked right on by. We need to pray that the Lord would slow us down and give us his heart, his mind. Let me see things the way that you see them. This poor widow gave like Jesus was about to give and that's why he praised her. You don't need an awesome skill set to bring to God. You don't need a massive bank account to bring to God. The greatest gift that we can give to honor Him is what Paul says and encourages and begs the church to do in Romans 12 when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give to God everything that He has given to you. Because that's holy and it's acceptable to him. It's our spiritual worship when we lay our lives down. He says, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind in that passage. He says, here's what you do. You take everything. What has God given me? Everything. He gave me breath. He gave me this life. He gave me my my physical body. What am I meant to give back to him? All of it. Here's Here's what you've given to me. It's for your use. It's for your purpose. It's all yours anyway. I got this body on loan. And you know what? It belongs to him anyway. Everything that he's given me in this life, I'm a steward of. It's his. And he's entrusted us with these things because we ought to go and serve him and minister to others and lovingly, because he loves us, love each other and do everything that we possibly can to glorify him in this life by just giving our lives to him. And you're like, but I don't have 
this ability. You don't have to. He's given you a life. Use it. Spend it for him. Offer it on that altar as a living sacrifice. He will be glorified through it. Bring it to the Lord and sincerely offer it to him. Jesus reminds us over and again, God doesn't value what the world values. He doesn't value what the worldly system values in their lostness and in their sin. He values the things that are spiritual. He values the things that the world mocks. Jesus reminds us that God is a generous God because he gave his most precious son to us. God gave the most precious thing he could give. What are we giving back? We represent him when we give the most precious thing we have been entrusted with, that being our lives as an offering of worship. You see, the widow adopted the same attitude of Jesus. And it's what Paul urges the Philippian church and all of us to do as well in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. What did he do? Look at verse seven. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? I could just, whenever I read that passage, I just want to read it over and over and over again and teach it. Every time I read it, like, let's just break this down. We're not going to. But you guys, when you see that, when you see that emptying of himself, stop condemning yourself for not doing enough. Bring what you have to the Lord. Offer it to him and let the master craftsman do his work. Let him get to work. So many times, like, I just need to do more for God. No, you need to come to him and submit yourself to him. Lord, here I am. Will he give you things to do? Sure. But your identity can't get tied up in those things because your identity is there at the foot of the cross, purchased and redeemed and ransomed by the Savior himself. We don't get our identity tied up in what we do. That's why I can't think about doing things. I need to think about coming to the Lord and submitting my life to him. He will give me things to do that my identity isn't tied up with. You know, if I cease to be the pastor of Transform Ministries, I will still be a son of God. I'll still belong to Jesus. It's still going to be okay. Because my identity is tied to him and not a pulpit. My identity is tied to him and not a musical instrument. And you know what? I'll still be a part of an amazing family. So as long as he's called me to do this, I can do it freely because it's him that's empowering me to do it. I can continue to offer all that I possibly can and lay my life down because it's his strength that's going to get me from point A to point wherever I'm going. I would like to say B, but I don't think it's that short. I think it's going to be way over here somewhere. But that's okay. I don't even need to know. I can just trust that he's going to do things in his time according to his will. And when he gives me a task, I want to do it for him because I want the world to see the glory of the Savior. The greatest offering we possess in this life is the life that he's given to us. Worship team, come on up. 
This is the perfect morning. I probably say this every time we do, but this is a perfect morning for us to share in communion together. Because as we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, as we think about the bread and the cup, as we think about what he's given us, this unity in the church, the the elements of communion, Guys, this is a family meal. This is something we share as a church family. It's not for unbelievers. It's a unifying meal that we share together in full recognition that we have been made the family of God. That we are the body of Christ. And that by partaking the bread and by partaking of the cup, we together are sharing in something that binds us together. I don't know if you've realized this, but Jesus, is, as, as you take food and drink into the body, it sustains the body. It keeps the body functioning and alive and healthy. And Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. And when you take it, what is that doing? It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And it's holding us together. It's binding us together. You see, there, there's a time where we can, we can take communion and, and, and just recognize what Christ did for us, but we would be misled to think that communion was not intended to be a community activity. Jesus did it in community with his disciples and called them to continue that whenever they gathered. As often as you do this, remember me, call upon the remembrance of Christ and the power of God and the Holy Spirit to bind you together and to do the work that he has put you in this world to do. We come to communion the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we come to rejoice and to celebrate. We celebrate Jesus at the communion table. We thank him and we express gratitude because he has made us a family and not an isolated person scattered here and there and all over the place. Even those who are far from us are bound to us in Christ because of what he did at the cross and what is signified by communion. In the same way that he was about to, we're called to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Offering all that we are to Jesus, may we in unity and agreement with his body empty ourselves for his glory. Think of all he desires to do in and through us. Think of how he has taught us to honor and glorify him by showing the flaws of the scribes, by saying this is how not to do it. We don't want to do it that way. He's empowered us to do it his way. He's given us all that we need to glorify him his way. And we can look at this beautiful example this morning of this poor widow who comes and just drops these lepta into the treasury And Jesus says, that's beautiful. That's gorgeous. That's a wonderful thing to do. He's revealed to us his lordship, the uselessness of any ego. And he's shown us the beauty of sacrifice. So let's worship him this morning. Those who are distributing communion are going to come forward. They're going to distribute the bread and the cup to you guys. Hold on to them. We'll take them together. Um, But we're going to sing a song and just praise him and worship him. And um, let's just take a moment to reflect on the Lord and to worship him before we take communion together.